0: Hello I'm Stuart Craner and this is A Thinkers 50 podcast. Today our guest is Robert Cialdini uh, the author of Influence and the author of a new book called Persuasion. Persuasion is one of those um, words which I object to on on principle as uh, an abuse of the English language but the beauty of this persuasion is actually describes what Robert's written about very accurately. And persuasion is arranging for recipients to be receptive to a message before they receive it. Robert, can,
1: can you explain the kind of genesis of the, this book? That description does sound like some form of magic, doesn't it? That, how do we get someone to agree with a message if they don't know what's in it? And the answer is to put them in a state of mind that is consistent with the goals of the message before we send it. So, um, here's an example. Uh, A marketing study. Researchers walked up to individuals on the street Asked them if they could participate uh, in a marketing survey. They couldn't give them any money for it, but would you help us with it? Only 29% of people said yes. But if they preceded that request with a persuasive question, excuse me, would you consider yourself a helpful individual? Of course. And now 77% agreed to participate as a helpful individual in that survey so simply by focusing people before the message on a concept that's congruent with the goal of the message we produce an enormous amount of leverage for the message when it does occur and you do kind of undercover research
0: which I found really interesting because I think more people should do it Now, what, what what did that involve for this
1: particular book? That involved going from influence profession to influence profession to learn what trainers said worked best in the various influence professions. Sales, marketing, management, recruiting, fundraising, public relations, and so on. And what I found was that the aces of each of those Approaches each of those disciplines, right, acted like expert gardeners. They recognized that it doesn't matter how good a seed one might have to plant. If the ground isn't prepared ahead of time, that seed won't bear fullest fruit. And so the highest achievers spent as much time focused on what they said or did before they, they delivered their request as what they said or did within the, the boundaries of that request or that message.
0: Yeah, so we're talking, as you probably can hear, in a, a coffee place. And it's like saying that um, the quality of the coffee is related to the, quali- the quality of the coffee beans and the preparation you put into
1: it. And the preparation and, and even the atmosphere in which I enjoy a cup of coffee more in a certain kind of setting than in another kind of setting that steers me to the features of that experience in a way that I'm focused on it, instead of having my attention distracted or distributed among things that are not related to the essence of the thing I will now experience. What's good
0: about the book, what's interesting about the book uh, is that I mean, you're talking about universals, really, that have always always been there. You quote Sun Tzu, every battle is won before it is fought. So we know that, but in the business world in particular, we seem to think that the moment, being in front of somebody trying to sell them an idea, is the thing. Right. That is the key the key thing. So Why do we forget about the, and overlook
1: the power of persuasion? The model that we all have been taught for how one moves another in our direction is to focus on the content of what we, or the merits of what we offer to that person. And so we expend a lot of effort and time thinking about that. And one of the contentions in persuasion is that when we focus an individual on a particular idea, that idea comes to seem more important than before. Daniel Kahneman, the great uh, uh, behavioral economist, trained as a psychologist, said that nothing is as important as we think it is while we are thinking about it. Well, if we are thinking about the merits of our message we forget we underestimate the power of the context in which that message is presented especially the context that occurs immediately before the message and that's why I think we've we've missed it and is there
0: What's clear in the book, as I was reading it, is the the balance between preparation and manipulation, the ethics of it, is is perpetually interesting, isn't it? You cite one of the examples of a a sales guy who visited a family and deliberately forgot something and left it in the car and made a point of going out and going... Going, coming back into the house. And his point was that he wanted to, uh, for people to let let somebody back into their house was a, a matter of trust. So he wanted to build that trust or put the idea of tr- them trusting him in their head. So I think there's a, there's a thin dividing line between preparation and, and, and influence and, and manipulation. And that's constantly at work, isn't
1: it? I agree. And uh, that one, I, I happen to consider... Um, ethically objectionable, that is, to create a sense of trust for no reason other than a trick, a device. He said, oh, uh, I have to get something in my car. I know I've given you this test to perform. Can I get the key to your house, the key to your front door to let myself back in? And then he said to me afterwards, Who do you allow in and out of your home on their own? Only someone you trust. Well, that was a trick. It wasn't related to his genuine trustworthiness. And that's what I consider objectionable. I think building trust ahead of time or showing people that you are trustworthy ahead of time, when it's genuine, is precisely the right thing to do for both parties when it's accurate but not when it's a, an artifice. Yeah, yeah. You talk about
0: privileged moments, as, and kind of related to that, you talk about privileged moments. Wait, what, what do you mean by that?
1: It's the moment in which um, your message has been given special priority in the minds of your audience. So you have rate, there's a moment immediately before your message in which if you raise a particular concept to top of mind, a particular idea, let's say trust, and you have in your message blue ribbon evidence of your trust, people will be focused on the concept of trust to a greater extent. So what you've done is to privilege to prioritize the idea of trust before people ever encounter your evidence for it, and if it is strong evidence, it will have leverage like, not be, like never before.
0: I mean, the, the good thing about this idea is that it, that it is universal. You can use it in personally, every situation you, you encounter in your personal and, and professional life. And you've used these ideas and explored these ideas in a variety of settings. You did some work with the, the National Health Service in the UK, I know. What, what, did, what did that work involve?
1: It involved um, a collaboration with my partner here in the UK, Stephen J. Martin, who was asked to help with a problem that is very costly in the National Health Service. It's no-shows, what they call do-not-attends, people who make an appointment for a medical or dental uh, session, and they just don't appear, very costly. Uh, What Steve did was to recognize that if we can get them to make a commitment, a personal commitment to that appointment they'd be significantly more likely to appear for it on time. So what he did was to change the typical uh, uh, approach. When we finish one appointment we go to the desk and the receptionist gives us a card with the date and time of the next appointment already filled in. Steve asked her to give a blank card and a pen to each patient who filled in the date and time themselves, those people were 18% less likely to fail to appear because they had made an initial personal commitment to that date and time. Right? So a small thing like that made a big difference that if rolled out throughout the um, the National Health Service would, would would save millions, millions, hundreds of millions of pounds uh, a year. And you also work with the Tax Office in the UK as well. Yes, again, uh, S- Steve Martin was uh, spearheading this, but it uh, there are delinquent uh, taxpayers that are costly to the uh, to the government. Right? They typically get uh, a letter describing what will happen to them if they fail to pay their taxes on time. And that produces about a 67% compliance rate. They then send in their, their uh, payment on time, by, by the, uh, uh, the time frame. If the letter says instead, the majority of taxpayers do pay their taxes on time. That goes from 67% to 73% compliance. If it says the majority of taxpayers in your postal code do so, it goes to 79%. And finally, if the letter says, the majority of taxpayers in your community, it goes to 83%. So, for one paragraph change in a letter, we can produce um, differences that are stunning, that much more costly programs have failed to produce.
0: Hmm. How does this relate to a concept such as, like, nudge? which the, the British government, for instance, has had a, a nudge unit and behavioral economics generally has been very fashionable over the last two or two or three years. So how do your, your, your ideas relate to that, do you think?
1: I think there's a lot of compatibility there with the idea that we can uh, structure communications in a way that al- allow people to take uh, steps that are in the in the general good in the larger good right? without coercing them we're, we're not sending a letter that says these are the penalties that will be assigned to you this is the this is the sanction that your government will apply to you which produces resistance we're giving them some evidence that allows them to decide. This is what the uh, basis of nudge is, giving people evidence they didn't have before that allows them to make a choice that's better for all concerned.
0: Mm. And you mentioned in the book the, the rise of uh, evidence-based decision-making. So you think your ideas fit firmly in that in that, that
1: camp? It, I think it does. The, I think this accounts for the fact that my first book, Influence, was uh, written uh, back in the 80s, and for three or four years had no sales to speak of. And then suddenly, it took off to best-seller levels. And it's not ceased being a best-seller for more than 30 years now because of the commitment to evidence-based decision-making in the major institutions of our society. And that book provided a compendium of pieces of evidence of how the influence process works and can be harnessed. right? And it was that change in the times, I think, that the, the culture of business and government and education and so on that allowed that book t- to capture attention. <laughs>
0: Does persuasion relate to influence, then? What is the relationship between the two
1: books? Well, so, for example, um, the idea is that not only should we use the principles of influence that were described in that book in our message, we should make contact with those principles before we send our message. So, suppose our message describes how um, The authority principle, our expertise, our experience in this particular domain qualifies us to be the choice uh, for uh, people to move in our direction. A manager might want to say that to uh, the people who uh, have to um, be responsible for um, activating uh, a new initiative, right? not only should that manager speak to the expertise and, and, and experience that he or she has in this area in the message, that manager should raise the concept of expertise to consciousness before delivering the message, because that will focus the recipients on the concept of expertise before they even encounter that message and give it special traction as a result.
0: It's worth uh, saying again the, the, the six elements of in, in influence which you, you highlighted in the first book, which were reciprocation, liking, social proof, authority, scarcity, and consistency. Why, why, why does the idea of influence? you know, as, as you say, it wasn't initially popular, but it became popular in the state. There, why does it still resonate?
1: I think it's always been popular, but it's been consigned to the arena of the art of influence, something that people who have uh, a preternatural gift for saying the right thing at exactly the right time, will be able to master. The rest of us will just be awed by their capacity to do that. The new evidence is that this is not just an art, it's a science. It's and if it's a science, that means the rest of us can learn it and become as effective as the born masters of the process.
0: And where where does your research go next then? So you've looked at persuasion, you've looked at influence. I mean, the obvious thing is to look after. Yes, (laughs) no, you're you. This this is exactly
1: right, Stuart. It's a perceptive perceptive comment, and and the. The very last chapter of my book is called post-suasion. If we've moved someone in our direction, we want that movement to be durable, to last. We don't want it to be ephemeral and to disappear when their attention goes somewhere else. So what are the things we can do to solidify a change once it's occurred? I think that's the next arena for us to study.
0: Are there different cultural reactions
1: to the idea of persuasion
0: and and, and influence to a a greater or lesser lesser extent? Because it seems to me that there are very different cultural reactions potentially to some of the things you talk about. Uh,
1: Another perceptive comment, uh, because what our evidence is is that certain of the principles will be more heavily weighted by subgroups within a culture so, young people, for example, are much more spurred to action by the idea of the scarcity or lack of of availability. The idea of losing something is much more uh, motivating and mobilizing for a younger person. Mm-hmm. For an, For a, a more senior individual, it's the principle of commitment and consistency what have i done what have i committed myself to previously right that will steer us to want to be congruent with what we have said or done earlier now so that's within a culture then across cultures we also find differences There was a study done by Citibank a few years ago. They have offices all over the world. They took four cultures and asked managers, suppose someone comes to you, uh, one of your colleagues, and asks for your help on a project that's not yours. It's going to require that you take time, energy, and maybe even some staffing, and give give those things to your colleague Right? Under what circumstances would you feel most obligated to say yes? And one culture was a British-based one. UK, Canada, Australia, US. Right? Here's the answer that rose to the top of... Now, it wasn't the only answer, but the top answer was I would ask myself what has this person done for me recently if this person has assisted me i have to say yes it's the rule for reciprocation in the far east the answer that rose to the top was different it was is this requester connected to a senior person in my organization Is this person associated with my boss? Out of fealty to my superior, I have to say yes to this. In the Middle Eastern, excuse me, in the Mediterranean cultures, the answer was not is this person connected to my boss, is this person connected to one of my friends? So now it's not authority, it's friendship. And to be honest, if you notice the countries that are in trouble right now economically, they are the Mediterranean countries. Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal. Now I'm Italian, so I get to say this, but doing business on the basis of liking is a mistake. It's a it's a wrong strategy for deciding with whom to partner in a business exchange. Right? Now one last culture. Germany and the Scandinavian countries. Here was the answer that they gave that was at the top. It was According to official rules and categories, am I supposed to say yes to this requester? In other words, what have I made a have I made a commitment to the rules of this organization? If so, then I'm going to stay congruent with them. Now, the crucial thing is that, of course, in the UK, you care about friendship, you care about authority, you, right? the one that rose to the top is the one that was prioritized by the culture. So it's the weights. It's not that these six principles don't work everywhere, but the weights associated with them differ.
0: Yes, what um, Erin Meyer of INSEAD calls uh, cultural relativity. So what's the most Common question people ask you.
1: Here's the one that they ask, and it's it's a. It must be fairly conclusive because yeah, you answered that very. quickly. yeah, I, I've heard it often, and it, and it sticks in my mind because it's the wrong question. The question is, so of, so professor of influence, what's the most influential tactic I can employ? What's the single most effective uh, approach, influence approach? Hmm? that will win the day across the widest range of circumstances. And I have a colleague uh, in the United States who set about to find the single most effective influence approach. And I saw him at a conference after his search ended. He caught me by the elbow. He said, Bob, I found it. The single most effective uh, influence approach is not to have a single influence approach. That's a fool's game. To think that the same strategy will work on all populations, in all settings, with all manners of history with those individuals and so on, that's just naive. So that, that question, I have to answer in terms of the results of of my colleagues' uh, search. Uh, it's a fool's game to to find the single best strategy.
0: Hmm. So from your professional and personal point of view, what does, what does success look like?
1: You know, I'll answer that in a in a personal way. I'm on the faculty of a university, uh, Arizona State University. It is not a high-ranking school. I've had chances to move to other places where um, my mother would be prouder. I'm 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 sure she's indecently proud. Yeah, well, the point is I have a good, personal and professional relationship, set of relationships where I live. It's in Phoenix, Arizona. I happen to love that area and I like the environment. So for me success involves a blending of what constitutes the good life. The good life is a combination of success in professional and personal arenas. And we should we should recognize that uh, that blending, that combination, has to be, um, uh, if not equal, at, at least close to one another in order to be uh, happy at the end of the day. How, how do you explain what you do? If somebody asks you
0: if you're a, at a party or out, people say, Bob. What
1: do you do? Yeah. I say I I I study and teach on the topic of influence and persuasion. And I say how, for example, you are influenced by the messages you hear every day from various kinds of sources. Your colleagues, your friends, advertisers, marketers, salespeople, your family members. how What can they say or do to increase the likelihood that you will say yes to their requests?
0: If you were challenged with uh, describing yourself in three words? What what three words would you use?
1: I guess I would say... Researcher, teacher, scientist.
0: Sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) Um, What book are you reading at the moment?
1: I'm rereading Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. That's a dense read, but I get insights from it all the time.
0: If you had to identify a mentor in your career, who would be the key figure who shaped shaped your ideas? It
1: was a man named Stanley Schachter who I went to study with at Columbia University, um, who showed me how to follow not my preconceived theories about behavior, but to follow the evidence and to get off a particular horse I was riding in a direction. If the evidence was suggesting that the the real power was in the other direction, I needed to get on that horse and go there. And so often uh, I see people committed to a particular direction without the flexibility of recognizing that there's a more interesting or uh, worthwhile direction to explore uh, somewhere else and it's worth following that path rather than staying uh, uh, committed to an initial uh, direction.
0: Robert Cialdini? Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Stuart.
0: Thank you for listening. That was a Thinkers 50 podcast. Thinkers 50 podcasts are produced by KDH Creative.